Welcome to God's Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. I got some good news and bad news. Of course, the bad news, you could probably already hear it. My voice is going out. It's dying, kaput. But the good news is that we have Robert Wiesner on the line with us. We had a little tr- I had a little trouble pronouncing his last name, so I got that little pause there. But we got him here to do all the talking for us. So it's a happy day. And Robert, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, who your, your background and your field of interest? Yeah, sure. So uh, thanks for having me on, first of all. Um, so I was born and raised in uh, Dallas, Texas. So like any good American, I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. <laughs> um, didn't uh, didn't grow up in a Christian home, but had a uh, kind of born again conversion experience when I was 16 years old at the church youth camp. And uh, my my mother remarried around the same time, and we began uh, attending a small Southern Baptist uh, church that eventually sort of became an independent church. And I wasn't uh, a great student in high school, but uh, when I was about to graduate, my my mom basically told me you can you can stay here as long as you're in school or uh, paying rent. And I didn't want to do either, and so. Uh, one thing led to another, and and uh, I believe that God wanted me to go into the United States Marine Corps, so I enlisted. And uh, not long after finishing my training, I ended up in a unit uh, where uh, I worked under a uh, Christian man who uh, got me involved in his church, which was a, a Calvary Chapel out in Vista, California. And um, it was the first place I'd ever been where you had— the Bible as a real focus of, of, of worship and everything we did. We were always always teaching, studying, trying to apply every verse of the Bible. Uh, the theology and exegesis weren't very deep, but uh, and I eventually came to reject some of the uh, that tradition's distinctives, but uh, I grew a really uh, deep love for the Bible and, and a desire to study the Bible in, in a deeper level. So I you know I knew I needed to learn uh, Hebrew and Greek. And so when I got out of the Marines in 2008, I began attending, uh, Dallas Christian college where I, where I did a bachelor of art in biblical studies and biblical languages. Uh, just finished up doing a THM at Dallas theological seminary and new Testament studies, which is where I wrote the thesis that we're going to talk about today. And, um, and I just got accepted into a PhD at university of Aberdeen, where I'll be doing a thesis on Paul's theology of sin in the context of uh, Second Temple Judaism. Nice, nice. Yeah, that, that's really exciting. That's actually how I found you. You were talking on a thread about Second Temple Judaism and possible influences on the Apostle Paul. And that's exciting stuff, at least to me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, so you have a thesis and... Let's see, i try to pull it up real quick here. Chosen from the beginning, Paul's predestinatarian theology of election in the context of Second Temple Judaism. In Second Temple Judaism, not very many Christians are familiar with extra-biblical texts that are available in the second century time period. So it's of great interest to me, what kind of background... Uh, did Paul have? What kind of background did James and the Twelve have? And and in what context, their cultural context, are they writing? And these ancient uh, texts allow us to kind of kind of gauge the cultural currents of that time. So my first question to you, talking about the Second Temple Temple literature that we just talked about, can you just briefly describe what we have available to us today, and is this representative of Judaism as a whole? 
Yeah. So um, basically, and it gets kind of complicated, but um, your your listeners who read their Bible will hopefully know that in 586, uh, the Babylonians uh, came into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and hauled off the Jews there uh, into exile. And they were eventually allowed to go back in 539 when, when Persia overtook Babylon as a world power. And they immediately began to rebuild the temple. And the second temple was rededicated in 516. So, And then that temple was later destroyed by the Romans after a revolt in uh, AD 70. So roughly speaking, we're talking about literature that was written during this time. But we also distinguish it because... Most of the New Testament was written during this time, and a few books from the Old Testament were written during this time. And so we, we kind of distinguish it from them. And so there are basically five bodies of literature. I'll list them real quick. You have the what so-called Apocrypha, which you'll find in uh, Catholic Bibles still today. Uh, what's called the Pseudepigrapha, which is uh, a body of literature that features a lot of uh, what's called apocalyptic literature and testaments and and different kinds of rewriting of biblical history. Uh, you have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, you have a, an author named Philo who was writing in Alexandria, uh, roughly contemporary with the New Testament. And you have some rabbinic materials that go back to that time. And uh, all these texts were originally, we've got we've got Greek texts, Aramaic texts, Hebrew texts, um, and they represent a variety of viewpoints theologically and approaches to Judaism. And uh, we have a lot of different genres in that. We've got, we've got history, we've got wisdom literature, I mentioned apocalyptic, philosophical texts, you have worship texts like psalms, community rules, uh, exegetical material that are interpreting biblical texts, and uh, what the rabbis called uh, halakhic texts, which is basically uh, the way you apply biblical teaching. And so uh, I, I think we've, with Judaism, I, I don't study other religions very much, but with Judaism, we have a wide and vast body of literature that I would be surprised if we don't have a really good picture of the theological landscape of Second Temple Judaism. We, we have a lot of different voices. Uh, and so it's uh, really, really a good thing for anybody interested in the historical context of the New Testament, because we have so much that we can read uh, about how Jews thought in that time. So talking about this, this Second Temple literature being representative of Judaism as a whole, uh, let's talk about the various sects, the Pharisees, the Essenes, or the Essenes, Essenes. Mm -hmm. however you want to pronounce it. I I always pronounce it wrong. I I have a problem (laughs) with that. But but what kind of uh, text do we have from these different groups? Yeah, so it's not always very easy to nail down exactly what group is responsible for authoring what particular texts. Uh, in the case of the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, scholars are pretty united. There are some diverging voices that the materials from the Dead Sea Scrolls originated in a, a um, Essene te- uh, sect, right? So it's not uh, the Essenes, for example, were probably a diverse group in and of their selves. And so not every Essene would have necessarily affirmed everything that 
was going on at the Dead Sea uh, in Qumran, where, where those texts were most likely authored. And so that's one one area where we're pretty sure that we're dealing with Essene literature. And, and part of the reason we know this is because uh, Josephus in writing his history of the Jewish people called the Antiquities, and he's writing it for uh, Greek-speaking Roman people, um, he describes the theological landscape of Judaism in his time, and he does it by dividing the groups into three philosophies or schools, and they're the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which your listeners would have come across in in reading the New Testament, and there are the Essenes. And he tells us that the Sadducees, and and we're using kind of anachronistic language here, but he essentially, if I can summarize, the Sadducees had a very strong libertarian theology. They they really prioritized human free will and said that God didn't quite directly intervene with uh, the affairs of, of mankind. Um, the Pharisees sort of held to a paradoxical, unresolved tension where, you know, the way Josephus summarizes it. They say that some things happen as a result of fate and other things happen as a result of free will. And then he says that the Essenes do away with free will and attribute all things, everything that happens to fate. He uses the word fate because he's, again, dealing with Greek speakers with the, with the background in Greek philosophy. And so he's trying to package Judaism for them. And so um, this tells me that uh, we can at least begin to sort through this literature on these grounds and find these texts where where you have if you've got a heavy emphasis on free will in a particular text you should be thinking it's pharisaic or uh, possibly written by sadducees if you've got a really strong predestinarian emphasis like you have in some of the materials in the dead sea scrolls uh um, then you, you, you're working your way over towards the Essene camp, I think. And what's helpful with this is, you know, we, again, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls and there are these really strong predestinarian texts. And so basically what my study was, was a comparison of some of the most blatantly and clearly predestinarian texts in the Dead Sea Scrolls and also another text uh, from the book of Sirach, uh, Sirach 33, which is also very strongly predestinarian. And I, I, I worked through those texts to show how they talk about predestination as an explanation for um, the election of individuals unto final salvation, and then compare that to Paul's language. And, and I know that uh, you, you espouse a different view on this podcast, but my view is that uh, Paul's language looks very much like that. And it, it really surprisingly led me to the conclusion that um, Paul probably was uh, well influenced by the Essenes. He tells us in his autobiographical statements in the New Testament that he had formerly been a Pharisee. And what seems to be a good explanation to me is that once he realized that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. His categories got shattered, but he didn't want to cease being a Jew. And so he looked for um, uh, an explanation, a, a, a Jewish perspective that allowed him to make good sense of what he now believed as someone who recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And so there are a lot of distinctive things in Paul's theology that we don't see anywhere else in 
Judaism, except for, at least not nearly as clearly, except for in these Essene materials. So, for example, in a number of places, Paul talks about the church as the temple of God. Well, that is something that the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls uh, contain, where they saw their community as the sole place of atonement for people. They saw themselves as the true priesthood, and they even identify their community as the true temple. Um, Paul also uses some light darkness language that's pretty distinctive, and you find that in, in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They talked about being in the New Covenant, as Paul does, which was uh, distinctive among uh, Jewish people. Um, and also some there are some interesting parallels to his justification language, righteousness of God language, and the only other instance we have of the phrase works of the law outside of Paul comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. And so there, there are a lot of stunning parallels that um, the Jewish scholars that I read, people who focus on Second Temple Judaism, were happy to say, hey, we need to count Paul as an Essene. I find less of that willingness among uh, scholars dealing with Second Temple or excuse me, dealing with Paul's literature. But uh, I, I came to think that that made a uh, really good sense of some of his distinctive uh, theology, especially when it comes to the topic of predestination and election. Yeah, so so talk about some of those uh, Essene texts, which, sure. which you see parallels with Paul, and, and yeah. how you see those texts in Paul's writing. Okay, so I focused on three passages. Um and I was responding to a scholar by the name of A. Chadwick Thornhill, who wrote a book called, um, oh, what was it, The, the Chosen People. Uh, and it's a study of election in the context of Second Temple Judaism. And basically his thesis was that we don't find election described as the predestination of individuals in Second Temple Judaism. Therefore, Paul was not likely to have thought that. And so I had I had been studying Second Temple Judaism a bit, and uh, I was very interested in reading the book. And I I knew a little bit about the landscape of this topic from from some other research that I had done, and I I was shocked by uh, the way he was interpreting some texts that uh, virtually every other scholar who had read on the subject recognizes that they're strongly predestinarian, even if they reject that Paul held that view, they at least recognize that these were predestinarian. And so um, it was a master's thesis and it went about twice as long as it was supposed to. And so I had to um, uh, narrow it and it ended up being a good thing. So I just focused on three texts that I thought were especially uh, parallel to a lot of the language that Paul uses. And those were, uh, Sirach 33, verses uh, 7 through 15, um, a text called the Sermon on the Two Spirits, which is part of a passage or uh, uh, a document in the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Community Rule, which is um, basically a covenant law text that was uh, essentially the contract that, that was followed for people who joined the community there at Qumran. And it's got a section called the Sermon on the Two Spirits which talks about at creation, God assigning to people either the spirit of uh, falsehood or darkness or deceit uh, to some resulting in their eventual damnation and destruction 
and to others a spirit of light or truth resulting in their eternal salvation. And and it's through covenant membership so that they're being assigned that spirit results in their becoming uh, members of the covenant, which was their community, and then eventual salvation. And then you have what are called the Hodayot, which is a Hebrew term for uh, Thanksgiving hymns. And uh, this is basically a collection of hymns or psalms that, that were part of the worship of the community. And there are, especially in column seven and column nine, some really, really uh, strongly predestinarian passages. And um, so uh, we could we could start a lot of places. I'll, I'll start with the Sermon on the Two Spirits quickly and, and just mention where I think there are some parallels there. And, and I mentioned how, again, they talk about God assigning one spirit to a portion of humanity and another kind of spirit to another portion of humanity. Um, and you you get something that sounds remarkably like that in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where if you look at, um, and I'm going to read the uh, English text here, look at uh, verse 11, and this, is, this comes at the end of a detailed eschatological scenario of, of the end times before the Lord returns that, that Paul details there. It says, therefore God sends them, and this is the, these people who had followed this satanic figure called the, the man of lawlessness. It says, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order, and this being a purpose or result uh, clause here, in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And then in verse 13, you get um, a really key passage in these debates. It says, but we, so you, you've got a, a contrast, and antithesis here, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because he chose you and there's a textual variant here, and, and I went with this reading on, on my research. He chose you from the beginning, which is where I get the title of my thesis. He chose you from the beginning to be saved, and here it is, through sanctification by the Spirit. Uh, in, in the Greek text, you have uh, a, a genitive here, which could either be a subjective or objective genitive. I opted for it being an objective genitive, meaning that it is God sanctifying the human spirit uh, for belief in the truth. So that it's a contrast where he sends a delusion to one group in verses 11 and 12, and he sanctifies the spirit, uh, the spirits of those who are saved, who had been chosen from the beginning to be saved through this sanctification of their spirit. And this language, if you if you read that text, uh, the Sermon on T the Two Spirits, Paul sounds uh, quite remarkably close to that in uh, uh, a lot of a lot of particulars that I detail in that uh, thesis. And let's see here. and and there are a lot. I don't uh, let's see. Uh, we we could talk about the uh, the Thanksgiving hymns and uh, a key text for this is Ephesians chapter one, because essentially Paul uses what amounts to an exact translation of the, the introductory phrases um, as he introduces in Ephesians one, verse three, he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, etc." cetera. Uh, these hymns, these Thanksgiving hymns would start with something like blessed are you, O, o Lord, our God, or something like that. Uh, so essentially that, that passage, which uh, may be well known, is 
a Thanksgiving hymn that's right at home with a lot of the stuff. It, it really looks like it, it could have been taken right out of, of this collection of hymns by the community who wrote the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. And when you look at it, especially in a text like chapter 7, um, uh, you have this long section uh, where it talks about God having uh, determined uh everything for humanity before he created them. It says, how should any be able to change your words, which refers to God's, God's word being creative and uh, affecting the result that he desires uh, infallibly. And uh, he says, you alone have created the righteousness, the righteous one from the womb. You established him to give heed to your covenant at the appointed time of grace to walk in all things, nourishing himself, etc. So you, you get this idea that coming into the covenant is a result of God's predestined uh, activity th- through his word, which is his word spoken at creation that we might think about with uh, a text like Genesis 1 where God speaks and, and, and the world is formed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you uh, you get a – oh, and it, it goes on to talk about him setting the wicked apart for disaster, for the day of slaughter, etc. It's, it's a really strong double predestinarian text, and it's, it's very distinctive. And, um, and so then you also get a text in chapter 9 – where he talks about the the wicked having been prepared in order, and I said chapter nine, and really I mean column nine. They they don't have chapter divisions in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. It goes by columns and, and line numbers. So, uh, so uh, column nine, line thirty two. It talks about uh, the wicked having been prepared in order to execute great judgments on them, and and this is the key that I think sounds very similar to what Paul says in Romans nine that they might be a sign so that all might know your glory and great power. Well, that's, that's very similar to what Paul says in Romans 9, where he talks about, he says, you know, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he prepared hand for glory, even us whom he called, etc. So this is very, um, a, this, this can also be seen in distinction from a very libertarian text uh, called the Wisdom of Solomon, which is part of the Apocrypha. And Paul, uh, uh, several scholars, including uh, guys like John Barclay, who's uh, one of the world's best Pauline scholars, he wrote a book recently called Paul and the Gift that anybody who wants to understand Pauline theology must read that book. Um, And, uh, but he's done some work on how the wisdom of Solomon, how Paul might be interacting with it or with uh, Jews or Jewish Christians who were holding to some kind of view like that. And it's clear that Paul takes the opposite view from that here and, and favors something. And I say clear. I know that um, this is a, a, an open theist podcast. so I'm not trying to um, to dismiss that perspective, but it seems clear to me that that Paul is taking that that kind of view over against a, a libertarian view. And he is aligned very closely with the kind of language that's used there. And I'll just mention one more from the uh, uh, Hoda Yot, where um, the, the hymnist asks God not to set his portion among the hypocrites and uh, says instead that um, God calls, calls him uh, to his mercies and his forgiveness. And this is in uh, um, 
column 15. And the Greek that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, he says, for God has not destined us, which is, um, the Greek term is tithemi, which is appointment. It's the same kind of, it's essentially a, a Greek translation of the Hebrew that, that is used there in the, um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. And there's an ellipsis in the second line, but the parallelism makes it clear that he has not destined us for wrath, but has destined us to ob- obtain salvation. And um, and so the the idea here is is really what um, some scholars have seen as uh, a verbal parallel. It's it's very very close in in the language, and so um, and then the 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 biggest. And most obvious parallel is um, something that has been observed for quite a long time. And and I learned about it from John Piper's monograph called The Justification of God. A, a lot of people know John Piper as an influential pastor, and they, don't, they may not realize that he used to be a very um, uh, rigorous New Testament scholar. And he wrote that book which is a really detailed exegesis of Romans chapter nine. And it's a, uh, half the, uh, literature that he cites in there is in German. I mean, he, he, he really was a, a very, uh, good scholar in that regard. Um, and it, it's just a really fascinating, masterful book. And he, uh, introduced me to the background of Sirach 33, which, uh, let me get that text up here real quick. And um, so, and, and there's a lot of there. There's there is some debate about um, the theology of the Book of Sirach, and so I can't just uh, um, uh, generalize too greatly. But I'm of the view that it does hold a um, a predestinarian theology, although it's not as rigorous or as systematized as what we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But um, Uh, This is what the text says. It says, why is one day more important than another when all the daylight in the year is from the sun? By the Lord's wisdom, they were distinguished. He appointed the different seasons and festivals. Some days he exalted and hallowed and some he made ordinary days. So he's he's talking about God, you know, a a sort of arbitrariness in making some days holy uh, while leaving others alone. Mm. And then he goes and he he makes that comparison in order to talk about human beings. He says, all human beings come from the ground and humankind was created out of the dust. In the fullness of his knowledge, the Lord distinguished them and appointed their different ways. Some he blessed and exalted and some he made holy and brought near to himself, but some he cursed and brought low and turned uh, them out of their place like clay in the hand of the potter to be molded as he pleases. Uh, So all are in the hand of their maker to be given whatever he decides. And so this is that language that Paul uses in Romans 9 with with God doing according to his good pleasure. We get that language also in Ephesians chapter 1 where where God uh, predestined uh, or we're chosen um, uh, what is it? Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every uh, spiritual blessing in the heaven place. He's as, as he chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, etc., having predestined us, and then talks about it being a, according to his will or uh, the purpose of his will and, and texts like that. This is precisely the same Greek 
language that's used in Romans 9 and in Ephesians 1 here to talk about whatever he decides according to his will. And so um, uh, this, I think, is the clearest parallel to Romans 9. And most scholars, although there, there is more debate in, in Sirach, most scholars recognize that it to this section at least presents a pretty strongly predestinarian theology. So Sorry, that, that went long. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's, that's all great. And, and I, love, I love interacting with the text where you grab the Dead Sea Scrolls and you compare it to Paul. One yeah. thing I would like to just throw out there, we'll see what you say about this, is sure. the individuals that God seems to uh, sway to do bad things or, or manipulate. Like in uh, 1 Kings 22, Ahab. Ahab was evil, and God said to his divine counsel, how will we persuade him to go to battle? And get mm. killed. And so yeah. then, then that guy's manipulated. In Exodus mm-hmm. 3, we got Pharaoh. And I'm going to read Exodus 3 real quick here. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I'll do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. So it seems like he he grabs these evil people and then mm-hmm. he manipulates yep. them yeah. rather, rather than vice versa. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and to me, that doesn't really alleviate the, the fact that, so when you look at the example of Pharaoh and that's, that's one, you know, people will count up the number of instances of the verbs for hardening and they'll say, oh, look, sometimes Pharaoh hardens his heart. Sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And of course, at the beginning, Pharaoh, what, what's Pharaoh's incentive for letting Israel go? There is none. Why would he give up his free labor yeah. force? That's not good for the economy. You know, so initially he doesn't take Yahweh seriously. He doesn't take Yahweh's prophet Moses seriously. And he has no reason to um, let them go. So God doesn't need to harden his heart. But as the plagues get worse and worse, now he's got incentive to let them go because things are getting so bad that it's not worth keeping these people. Then you start seeing the increase of this language of God hardening his heart. So now God is preventing him from doing what it seems he would likely have done freely. And so you I, I don't think it alleviates any of the, the predestinarian uh, ideology there unless we are um, going to, you know, overlook the fact that God, God certainly violates Pharaoh's free will. I don't, I don't think there's any other way of, of, of reading that. And and unless, so, unless it was something yeah, like yeah. Ahab where mm-hmm. God uses manipulation techniques to sure. get the king to sure. do what he wants. And, and we shouldn't have a, a, a an overly simplistic view, right? So whether God God uses means or it, it, it expresses a direct hardening, you still have God getting His will done by, you know, you know, using using human beings as His instruments. And you know, this is one thing where where uh, one of the questions we are going to talk about is whether or not the Old Testament shares this view. And I think we have to be really, really careful about the way we get theology from different types mm-hmm. of literature because narratives aren't typically written for the purpose of creating a situation where you can, where, where you're su- supposed to draw really clear theological propositions. So there are other kinds of literature like worship or something like the epistle of Romans where the authors are, are presenting theology in more propositional terms that, that are very, very clear. And I think we should start with those to get categories and, let those kinds of things help us to theologically interpret the narratives that are really only intended, in my mm-hmm. opinion, primarily to tell you what happened and to give you the 
uh, characters or the author's perspective on it with, without necessarily trying to uh, evoke uh, detailed theological speculation in every instance. And so that's a tricky mm. matter of hermeneutics. And I, you know, um, it'd be hard to detail that. And, and I hope it doesn't sound like a cop out, but um, I, I and, understand. Yeah. 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 And so, so that's, that's, that's kind of the way that I, I would take it is making sure we're not getting the right doctrine from the wrong text and, and being very careful to uh, get at authorial intent. And we mm. have to do that through genre. We have to do that through uh, recognizing what, what, what kind of literature literature are we in and what was the author trying to do with this? Is he trying to get me to believe a certain theology of God's providence? If not, am I being responsible to, to make this text walk on all fours and create it when there are these other texts, like I think Romans 9, where Paul is trying to lay out a theology of God's providence and it sounds mm-hmm. very predestinarian. You know, so that's that's kind of the way I approach it. So one more ambush question, if that's sure, okay. Sure, go for it. Yeah. So in your paper, <laughs> you reference Jeremiah 18, and you yes. say it's it's kind of a rhetorical yes. uh, thing yes. for Israel. And so is that also how you take his explanation of the parable, where if a nation becomes evil, he won't do or he won't give the blessings he thought to do. Mm-hmm. And if the nation becomes good, he won't do the evil that he was going to do, right? Yeah. Yeah, so... so- it's, yeah. it's cause and effect. It's kind of like what sure. I was saying with Pharaoh, where Pharaoh's evil, so he makes him evil. And if it, mm-hmm. Pharaoh would become good, yeah. he might change. Yeah. So the primary per- – and this is where we, we talk about types of literature. The primary purpose of prophetic literature, which is what you have in Jeremiah, and not, not exclusive. This isn't exclusively mm-hmm. – the purpose, but it's one of the primary is about exhorting the people of God to do the right thing. Right. And so God sends prophets and says, Hey, you, you are violating the terms of the covenant. You better repent. Or you remember what Deuteronomy 30 says, these curses are going to come upon you. You're going to be exiled from the land. And of course, ultimately they don't, Mm -hmm. they don't heed that. Um, but it's interesting that Deuteronomy said that they wouldn't. Um, so, uh, anyways, uh, but, uh, so, so the point is, is that when Jeremiah is, and, and you get this also in Ezekiel as well in uh, chapter sixteen, if I'm I'm thinking off the top of my head, no, it's chapter eighteen. Eighteen, sorry. <laughs> yeah, where basically you've got Jewish people who are essentially saying, look, we're being we're being punished for stuff outside of our control, and essentially the prophet is saying, you don't need to be worrying about that. You need to be worrying about repenting. Don't get into this you know, philosophical, uh, speculation about why you're punishing or, or being punished. The, the prophet is saying you need to repent. If you repent, God, God has prescribed repentance. You need to repent. Now he, what Jeremiah is not doing is telling us, well, what's going to cause their repentance. That's something that we have to go to other texts that are trying to describe that. And, and, and we could do that. Um, but when, if we're just looking at Jeremiah and this, this is, you know, maybe something that um, that's sort of a, a personal uh, way of approaching this thing. I I'm okay with sounding like an Arminian um, when the text is, you know, not dealing with the question of the nature of God's providence. If it's an exhortation to repent. If I were preaching it, and and um, you know, I, I teach Bible studies. I don't I don't really preach anymore. Um, but if I were teaching the class or or and giving an application, I would say, hey, you know, we as God's covenant people, when when we're in sin, we need to just take ownership and repent. 
That's the point. I think that's different from the point that Paul is making in Romans chapter 9. I think he's appealing to some texts in Isaiah. And this is, and I'm glad you brought this up because mm. um, uh, I didn't get to mention this. In those uh, hymns from Qumran, you've got, and, and also in the Sermon on the Two Spirits, you've got this forming language and, and, and repeatedly in the hymns at Qumran, as in the book of Sirach that we read, you've got this idea of God molding people for particular destinies. And the Greek grammar that Paul employs uh, speaks pretty uh, emphatically of, of them being created for these ends. And I think even with the result of them uh, going to those ends, which he describes as uh, glory or destruction. And so, uh, yeah, uh, I hope that answers your question. I, I, I no, no, try that, to I, I cram a lot in there, but that that's the way I approach it. And uh, and I want to admit that I think anybody on these debates about the nature of providence could wish that certain texts were worded a little differently than they are for their own view. I don't think anybody can say, like, like I mean, you know, you you as an open theist, you probably wish that Paul had worded Romans nine a little bit differently, for example. Um, now I'm sure you have an explanation for, for why you're okay with what Paul said, assuming that you take it as an authority, but yeah. nevertheless, it's not the way you know, it, it creates a text that you have to give an explanation for. And there, there are admittedly texts in my theology that I have to give an explanation for. Um, but I, I think what I did in that thesis was show a lot of parallels to Paul's language in the Dead Sea Scrolls, sometimes very clear linguistic and grammatical parallels, sometimes more conceptual and ideological parallels. But I think, I think they're there. And, um, yeah, I hope, I hope, uh, yeah, they good. at least make you think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, while we're on this, on the subject, let's talk sure. about the old Testament, where okay. do you see this, uh, if if anywhere, this yeah. this idea of predestination found throughout the Old Testament texts? Yeah. So, one of the one of the clearest places, and and this is something that I I made a point about in the thesis in dealing with the Book of Sirach, which is in the category of wisdom literature, is that it it does speak of. Uh, God as creator, and it speaks of humanity in binary terms, either the wise or the foolish. And the wise are the way they are because of God giving them wisdom and and him p at least passing over giving the foolish wisdom, etc. And so you get a text like uh, in Proverbs 16, and I can't remember that off the top of my head right now on the fly, um, but um, it, it, the, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Uh, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit, etc. And, and it, it talks about him um, dealing with the, the rivers of man's heart. And then um, uh, verse four, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of uh, disaster, trouble. The the Hebrew term is ra'ah, which is often translated as evil, uh, but here the idea is destruction. Yeah. destruction. yeah. And, and so um, I, I, I would look at a text like this. I would look at something like uh, Isaiah 45, 45, 7, where Yahweh is said to uh, 
create both shalom, peace, and ra'ah, again, evil or calamity, destruction. Um, you get the prophet Amos asking rhetorically, does, again, Ra, does that, does destruction come on a city unless Yahweh has done it? You know, and, and it's it's clearly a rhetorical question saying that the Yahweh is, is res- ultimately the, the ultimate final grand cause of, of things like that. And so I, I, what I don't think you have in the Old Testament is anything like what you get in the Dead Sea Scrolls or Sirach 33, a detailed, propositional, systematic statement. This is the way God's um, providence works. Uh, and I don't think you have that for any position. Um, but I do think you get a lot of things that are consistent with um, uh, a, a stronger predestinarian view and, and therefore – um, I, I don't find anything in the Old Testament that, again, when, I, when I'm when i trying to be a very careful exegete and getting into the historical context, the literary context, paying attention to genre and authorial intent, I don't find anything in the Old Testament that is just insurmountable. Again, not, not everything is um, always worded the way that we would like as people influenced by modernism and wanting things very black and white, um, but you do um, – if you appreciate the genre and the author's purpose, I think it, it, it makes good sense why they they say the things they do the way that they do. Yeah, so. sounds good. Yeah, a lot to think about. Uh, of course, we got podcasts on a lot of those proof sure. texts that you talked sure. about. So I, 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 I don't want to be hostile in this interview because I'm yeah, really I interested, <laughs> especially in your knowledge of Second Temple, tr- Temple literature, which I think is outstanding. It's just... Uh, the Essenes seemed to be a very select cult where you had yes. to get membership and the outside world was evil and you had to become your membership of the cult uh, showed that you were the elect, the, the true yes. people of God and the yes. outside world. They were the evil ones. They didn't have the enlightenment in themselves. Yep. And yeah. Yeah. And, and so the, the parallels are not, exact in, in, and don't correspond in every way. And so, um, a lot of that, you know, Paul was a missionary, right? You don't have any, any comparison to that, that I'm aware of in, in among that particular Essene community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, but you do get some theological parallels and that's the point I'm trying to make. So I'm not trying to say that Paul was a member of the community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I, 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 I do believe he has, some uh, theological points of view that are distinctively Essene. And um, what exactly Essenism was, we don't quite know because it was probably, and, and I, I'm quite I'm quite convinced that it was more diverse than just what we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was a particular uh, sect within the sect of the Essenes that was, um, had, had, the strongest predestinarian views. And, uh, it, it, again, there's, there's a lot that, that Paul seems to have been influenced by in there, but that's, that doesn't exhaust what Essenism is. And the, the Christian, the earliest Christians were not simply Essenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think they were in, influenced by some Essene ideas that helped them to understand Jesus and the, you know, things like the end of the law, the, the fact that, Jesus pronounced the destruction of the temple. Well, well, how can that happen? We've got we've got this prophecy in Ezekiel of a of a latter day temple. Uh, you know, how how can something like that happen? Well, 
Christ is rebuilding the temple by creating the people of God as the eschatological temple. Well, who said that? The Essenes said that. Um, you, you know, and and that's that's sort of uh, a really. Uh, it, I, I think they would have found a lot of explanatory value in some of these things. Again, the the language of a new covenant. Yeah. Nobody else in Judaism of the period said that the new covenant had been established except the early Christians and the Essenes. And it, it, it's amazing that, that we just, we take that for granted. We go, oh, hey, we're in the new covenant. We're Christians. Well, uh, no other Jewish people believe that except, except that uh, from what we can tell these people who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so there, there's a lot of, a lot of that stuff that seems quite distinctive that we find in, in especially Paul, but also in other authors. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews seems to be profoundly influenced by it. First Peter, um, and, uh, the, uh, uh, the apostle John. John. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a big one. And so there are whole volumes written on, on the influence that, uh, John seems to have had from this community or, or something very like it. So do you see very much influence on Paul or anyone else from the mystery cults at the time? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I listened to a discussion about that recently, and I don't know a whole lot about that, but that, that mystery language is also found in a number of texts in Qumran. And so I think that Jewish background makes better sense than seeing Paul as having been influenced by um, contemporary mystery religions. Um, if you want to you know, broadly define it, you could say that the, the group at the S uh, the, the group who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls and their, and also early Christianity were, you know, mystery groups because they, they do talk about that language. That, that is language that pops up in some important places for them. But, uh, I'm, I'm skeptical of it. And, but honestly, I wouldn't want to dismiss it without being able to, to do the research. And I, I haven't been able to look into that very much. Yeah. So uh, my, my personal contention and, mm-hmm. and you don't have to respond to it, is probably the, the Essenes were influenced by mystery cults in their own day because the mm-hmm. mystery cults extended way past before even Plato. And so you, you had these these cultic centers and a lot of ascension, special chosen, enlightenment mm-hmm. type of language. Yeah, yeah. But I, it, it's just spec, it's kind of speculative sure, on my part. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, you don't want to dismiss it. Um, so, yeah, it... It is interesting that they were such a um, isolationist group, and they they were really writing about how bad all the other Jews were and how they had apostatized. But they do have that enlightenment mystery language themselves as the chosen and predestined ones, and and ritual and stuff. washing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You have that. Oh, there's another parallel. Um, they're, they're washing, replacing the ceremonies of the temple. That that's what baptism did for the early church was, um, you, you're baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Well, the temple's where you're supposed to get forgiven for sins. Well, early Christians said it's in baptism, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, anyways, yeah, it, but, but no, I, I, I hear what you're saying with that and it is interesting. And if you've read anything on that, I, I, I'd be happy to take a look at it. This is a field that I I still consider myself a student in. And and as I said, there's so much literature on that that we can read at just reading the primary sources. And uh, so I I try to read everything I can get my hands on, on it. Although now starting this uh, PhD, I'm having to 
narrow on my topic because I've got so much to read just on that. But anyways. Sounds good. Well, we're about out of time. So tell us uh, where we could uh, follow up on your literature. Tell us about your blog and sure. uh, where you're going to put your thesis once it's complete. Yeah. So um, the thesis is already complete. Um, if you happen to be in Dallas, you could check it out from the library at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, down the road, I have been encouraged by a couple scholars uh, to prepare it for publication. But now that I'm starting this PhD, I don't know when that's going to be possible. So I would like to one day be able to publish it and uh, make it something that's accessible to people interested in this topic. Um, uh, my blog, uh, I blog with a friend of mine, uh, Michael Metz, who's also a student at uh, Aberdeen, a PhD student, and it's called Jesus and Paul and the New Testament dot uh, WordPress dot org, and uh, I have and, and I, I put a halt on it, but I have been sharing about the thesis on there since I started, which ha- has only been recently, and uh, I'm going to be finishing that up, and I deal with uh, some more evidence in it and some less, so less less detail in some parts and, uh, but also adding some more broader categories, uh, to help expose readers to the diversity of election language in, in Judaism. Cause it's not monolithic. Judaism wasn't monolithic on anything. Uh, and so it certainly wasn't monolithic on election. Um, but yeah, you can, you can read that there and you can, you can find me on Facebook. Chris and I are friends on Facebook now. So, uh, look me up. <laughs> so yeah, I, I I'll plug your site real quick. I was reading those articles. I, I was excited. I'm like, this, this is, this is the great stuff uh, about the diversity of thought and Judaism. Yes. Oh, but so I suggest everyone check that out. Uh, thank you, Robert, for joining us today. Uh, if you, anyone has any questions or comments on this podcast, send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Start a thread on God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.